Scripture reading today is going to be from Luke 24, verses 13 to 27. Uh, so if you want to open up your Bibles there, we have Bibles at the end of the ends of the pews if you don't have one uh, with you. And if you don't own one, feel free to go ahead and take that Bible with you as a gift uh, from us. So it's Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 27. That very day, two of them were going to the village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. Uh, we've been doing this fairly often. I, I'd ask you to do it again uh, if you're able uh, and willing. Would you uh, kneel with me? Uh, we'll come before God in the scriptures and ask that he would uh, move, drawing us to himself, uh, opening our minds and our hearts to him that we might hear from him this morning. Uh, Father, first before you, we want to just praise you. We want to praise you and thank you silently for who you are now. Father, now we confess we are not you. We are not God. Would you open our minds and our hearts to your words that we might hear from you and we might be transformed by the good news we hear of who you are and what you've done, your might, your presence, your, your love for us in Christ. God, would you meet us and speak to us this morning out of your scriptures? Father, we are so grateful to be yours. Uh, we, some of us are in a really hard time right now. Some of us are in a, a wonderful time right now. Uh, in the ups and the downs, what we want to declare this morning is we are dependent on you. We're dependent on your scriptures to know you, to love you, to follow you. We, we want to know your son more and more this morning. Would you open our eyes to who he is and, and, and how to read the scriptures to see him more clearly? God, would you set our summer on a trajectory of knowing him more, not, not doing more this summer, but knowing someone in Christ in a way that, that our lives would be transformed? God, give us even tools to, to read your Old Testament to understand who your son is and what he's done. Open our eyes to your majesty, your glory by your spirit's work this morning. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, I was on vacation uh, this past week. I'll, I'll put vacation in quotes. We were in a house with 26 people, in-laws people. It was a joy. I mean, it was super fun. We played a lot of spike ball. We did some canoeing and fishing, and it was a blast. Uh, it wasn't super uh, restful. Um, and and uh, over that time of a week, you know, the conversation did what conversation often does. It, it went back to movies. Hey, what's your favorite movie? 
Ever kind of been in a conversation and ended up in movies again? What, what's your favorite movie? Go ahead and, and tell the person next to you what your favorite movie is. Go ahead and, and talk with the person next to you. What's your favorite movie? All right, you would probably talk all the way through the sermon, so uh, I'm going to take you to some of my favorites here. Uh, uh, and by the way, I, uh, some of you better have said Braveheart. Braveheart, anyone? Some of you better have said Shawshank Redemption. Anyone? Come on, hallelujah, you know, both hands up. Um, uh, do you like those movies where it's like, uh, it's a punchline at the end of the movie? And then you look back and you see the whole movie differently. You say, wow, I, I can't believe it. You know, uh, Usual Suspects is one of these kinds of movies. You, you've got this guy. He's this uh, uh, evil, awful person, uh, Kaiser Soche. And he's kind of uh, sharing about all these uh, things that this guy has done. And then at the end, it's Kevin Spacey. Uh, he's kind of being interrogated by these police officers. And, and then you realize that he's made up the whole story. He's pictured all these different things from this uh, board that's right there uh, in the interrogation room. And he is Kaiser Associated. And then, then you look back and you're like, oh my gosh, right? Uh, or Fight Club is kind of like this, you know, uh, Brad Pitt. You realize at the end, oh, there's not, there's not two people fighting. It's him. He's a split personality. Oh my gosh. You go back to the beginning of the movie and you kind of uh, see the whole thing new. But, but there's really one that, that does this the best. The Sixth Sense. Who said it? Sixth Sense, 1999, Bruce Willis. Uh, he's this child psychologist and a psychiatrist, and he's got this uh, one uh, child, Cole. And, and, you know, at the very beginning of the movie, what happens is Bruce Willis, this guy comes in, this uh, kid he had counseled, has grown up, and this kid comes in, shoots Bruce Willis, then shoots himself. And, 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 and then you, you, you kind of you think that Bruce Willis made it through, right? He's fine. Goes back to counseling. He gets this other kid. He's in counseling. And then, remember that line? I see dead people, Cole says. And you're like, oh my. And then at the end of the movie, you realize Bruce Willis has been dead the whole time. And you go back and you watch it again and you're like, mind blown. It's the linchpin. It's the, it's the heart of the movie, right? It, uh, the whole story now makes sense. Oh, now I get it. Luke 24 is that moment for the disciples. They've read the Old Testament Scriptures uh, through their life. They, they've uh, walked with Jesus in His life. They've seen Him die on a cross. They hoped He was the one. He resurrects three days later. And they're walking on the road to Emmaus. And He says... The whole story's about me. The whole story centers on Jesus. And that's the linchpin. That's, that's the piece that makes the whole puzzle make sense. That, that, that's when we go back and start in Genesis again, reading and looking forward to who Jesus is and what he will do. And then we read the epistles in Revelation. We look back on the Jesus who has come as we wait for his return. And we say, oh, it all makes sense now. Well, this morning, we're going to look through Luke 24 together, that kind of aha moment. But then I, I really want us to slow down for a second. It'll, be a, it'll feel a little bit like you're in a classroom. We're going to look through four ways, because for us, often the question is, well, how do I do that? How do I read the Old Testament particularly in a way that points me to Christ? That we might have these moments of knowing our Savior more intimately this summer and being overwhelmed by His grace and His glory. That we would, that we would offer our lives like the folks in the Old Testament and, and live in courageous faith callings following our Savior, Jesus. That we would uh, offer uh, even the dirty, the ugly parts of our life to our Savior. That He might transform us by grace. That we might follow Him and obey Him even more richly this summer. So we'll look at Luke 24 and then the how-to, and then I want to do that with a story that's uh, familiar to us in the life of Noah. And we're going to hear a story from our own body in that moment too, which is just going to be a joyful moment. All right, let's do it. We're going to cover a lot of ground quickly uh, this morning that we might get to the story of Noah and then the story showing off God's grace at the end of our sermon together. 
All right, Luke chapter 24, go with me there. We're in verse 13. That very day, two of them, this is Cleopas and probably Peter, were going to a village named Emmaus. This is outside of Jerusalem. We, we know this is probably Peter because in verse 34, this references Peter has already seen him uh, resurrected, Jesus resurrected. And, and Cleopas is mentioned by name in this interaction and conversation that the two have with Jesus who is resurrected. Uh, so it is uh, the day of resurrection and they're walking on this Sunday uh, to the road to Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem, and they're talking to each other, verse 14, about all these things that had happened. Uh, you can imagine their conversation at this moment. They're saying, I cannot believe that he's dead. We know they're marked by sadness, verse 17, looking sad about their conversation about all that has happened. They're talking about the hustle and bustle in Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus' trial, that sham trial, how everyone gathered at first. They celebrated him as king, but then they yelled, crucify him, crucify him. Uh, the whole city was abuzz, and then he died. And for three days they sat in sadness and fear. Verse 14, they're talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. The resurrected Jesus. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. He, he closes their eyes from recognition. And Jesus says to them, hey, what is the conversation that you're holding uh, with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? He's, he's playing dumb. <laughs> and their eyes are closed to his glory, who he is in his resurrected body. And they, they begin to describe the things that have happened concerning Jesus of Nazareth. And, and we thought he was the one when our chief priests and rulers delivered him, crucified him. We'd hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. And now it's the third day and these things have happened, a.k.a. he's still dead. But we'd hoped he was the one, verse 21. Moreover, some women in our company, they've gone to the tomb. They went to the tomb. They said, he's risen. He wasn't there. And they came back and they told us. But now, man, we're not sure. We're just walking to Emmaus. Verse 24. Some of those who were there with us, they went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, listen to this, in verse 25 of chapter 24 in Luke. Oh, foolish ones. Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ would suffer these things and enter into his glory? And get it. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, back in the beginning of the story, he interpreted to them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself, Jesus. And he went back to the Old Testament uh, into Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and all these Old Testament passages. And he explains to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So they drew near this village, which they were going to, Emmaus. He acted, Jesus, I loved, Jesus is kind of still toying with them. He acted as if he were going further. He's like, well, I'm just going to keep going now. And they urged him strongly saying, stay with us here in Emmaus. We want to talk more about these scriptures and how they point to Jesus the Christ. When he was at table with them, verse 30, he took the bread he blessed it. He broke it. He gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Ah, you're the one we've been waiting for. The whole story makes sense now that you've explained it for Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And now, now we see at this communion meal that you are the resurrected Christ. Ah, he disappears, and they, that night, go back to Jerusalem. So they're back in Jerusalem now in verses 36 and following in Luke chapter 24. And the same thing's going to happen. Uh, Jesus is going to come amongst his friends, his disciples. He's going to show them the wounds in his hands. Their eyes are going to be open. And this phrase hits again. 
Verse 44 and following. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, Jesus, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Uh, notice this, the scope of the scriptures that are about Jesus. It's, it's the whole scope. It's from uh, Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? It's, it's the prophets. It's all the prophets. It's the, the Psalms or the writings or the poetry of the Old Testament. The, the whole scriptures and then the New Testament pointing back all about Jesus. The whole scope of the scriptures pointing to Christ. Notice the specificity of the message that the Christ would suffer. The Christ, the chosen one, that's a title, he would suffer and on the third day he would rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. That, that Christ was going to live this perfect life in our place as our substitute. Then he's going to suffer on this cross to pay the penalty for our sin in our place as our substitute. Then he's going to die and, 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 and for three days be buried, but then raised to newness of life. Why? That we would have a message of forgiveness and repentance. If you turn to Christ, you can be forgiven and embraced and made a son and a daughter and follow him into all of eternity. Praise our God, what a story we are written into from beginning to end. It's that aha, oh, now I get it moment. Uh, every once in a while, you'll see a FedEx truck driving around. You probably know this. You're smarter than I was. But uh, look at that logo. What do you notice about the logo? Do you see that little arrow right there? Between the E and the X? FedEx, right? right? What They take packages from here to there, right? In, in, embedded in the logo itself is the, the, the great meaning of what they are about. It's this arrow from here to there. It's like, like oh, now, now every time I see a FedEx truck going, all I see is the arrow. <laughs> Jesus says, if you want to read the scriptures correctly, if you want your life to be about what my life, Jesus' life, is about, uh, you get to know him from start to finish in the scriptures, and you shape every piece of your life according to the one who has lived for you, died for you, risen for you, and given you newness of life. It's in John chapter 5. He's uh, talking with these kind of naysayers, and they're saying, Oh, you know, why are we to trust you, Jesus? We we don't want anything to do with you. He says, look, Moses testifies to me. John the Baptist testifies to me. And then he says this in John chapter 5. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. The whole scriptures pointing to Christ. It's that aha moment. It's that moment when, when John the Baptist is, is out and he's got all these disciples. This is in John chapter 1. And, and Jesus is growing in popularity. He comes by and John the Baptist says, There's the Lamb of God! That's the one we've been waiting for. Remember the sacrificial system and lambs being slaughtered and the Passover lamb? Here's the one who's going to die in our place. There he is! Aha! The arrow! It all makes sense! Start to finish, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first kind of nugget of the gospel. After the fall, God declares curses and blessings, and in the midst of it, he says, woman, through you, through your seed is going to come one, one who is going to crush the head of the serpent. The serpent will strike his heel, causing a poisonous death, but, but as he does so, uh, this head will be crushed and destroyed. In his death, we will find life. Genesis 3.15. Then we go all the way through uh, Isaiah chapter 53. This one suffering servant is coming. He's going to give his life as an offering for sin. 
to make us sons and daughters. And then all the way uh, to Revelation uh, 20, 21, Jesus returning uh, on a war horse and making all things new and everyone gathering around him, the lion who is the lamb and worshiping him from start to finish, all about Christ. At this point, you're probably saying, Matt, you are belaboring the point. We cannot belabor this point enough. (laughs) All the scriptures, all of our lives, every piece of our Christianity has to be about the Christ, the chosen one, Jesus himself. This is one story from start to finish. So when we read it, we, we look for the human authorship of what does the text mean in the setting in which it was shared and taught. But then we also look for God as author over the whole narrative saying, how does this point us to Christ? Some people say that you know, the, the Bible is a, a help guide for life. It's an instruction book for living. Well, it, it doesn't teach you anything about how to program your VCR. Some of you are like, what's a VCR? <laughs> Pretty terrible help guide in one sense, right? But, but it is sufficient for righteousness and salvation and training in righteousness that we might come to know our Savior and then say, I want to embrace Him, be embraced by Him, be covered in grace, that I might live and follow Him and obey Him in every piece of my life. One story pointing us to Christ. And guess what? It's not a story about you or me. Sometimes we'll read it and say, Well, there, I just gotta do this or that. I gotta be better. Like, I gotta be like David. Man, what a mighty warrior. I I, I gotta be like Joseph. I have to be like this. No, no, the, the first step is I have to embrace the one who is greater than David. I have to embrace the one who is like Joseph. I have to embrace the one who saved me like Noah did through the storms and the trials. That I might be remade, redone in his grace and live for him my savior the hero of this story let's keep our christianity about christ not legalism do more do better not politics and not about the peripheral things let's keep our christianity about who jesus is and what he's done all right so uh, now the question that you're probably asking yourself is how how do we do this Now let's get into some of the how. It'll feel a little bit like a classroom in here. Uh, There are four ways, uh, and I'll highlight here the guide we have for us uh, to take us through different Old Testament people, uh, men and women of the Scriptures and history, and and how they uh, lived for Jesus uh, and and anticipate Christ as we read about their stories. Uh, So please pick up one of these guides in the back. It's got all this how stuff in there, how to read the Scriptures pointing to Christ. And it also gives you a guide to do so throughout the summer. Uh, Also, uh, there's a book in the back you can get for 10 bucks. I'll talk about that uh, later. Let's talk about some of this how together. How do we do this? Uh, The first way to to read all of the scriptures, uh, what we'll call a Christ-centered hermeneutic, uh, a way to understand the scriptures uh, in a way that points us to Christ, that we might be transformed by our Savior, is this idea of the redemptive historical method, the uh, redemptive history. It's simply the idea of Jesus is next or Jesus is coming. Uh, Something in the redemptive uh, history has moved forward. Just think about a timeline. Uh, in, in the grandest kind of way, we've got creation, then you've got fall, then you've got redemption, and you've got culmination, right? Uh, in the beginning, everything is uh, created that we would have a, a relationship with the living God, but then there's a fall where sinful people uh, and rebels, we run from our God rather than to our God. But then Jesus comes and redeems all things. He, he pays the penalty for our sins and draws us uh, to be his sons and daughters. And then we wait for the return of Christ when all things will be made new. So there's, in a sense, a historic uh, history and timeline, and different events will move us forward closer to Christ who is next or coming in the story Uh, the covenants do this all throughout you've got the Abrahamic covenant the Davidic covenant the new covenant and 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 these are kind of these relational strands which will uh, be woven throughout the history and story of a a story of a living God uh, maintaining and uh, restoring relationship with his people us in Christ 
Uh, you might think of uh, moments in the story like uh, simply uh, one that I mentioned, the fall, right? Everything was created to be perfect, but then there's a fall, and that makes us think, I need a Savior, and points us forward to this moment, this next piece of the timeline when our Savior will come. Right? Or, or Ruth and Naomi. Uh, uh, Ruth and Naomi's family has uh, really all died. And, and what we come to find out is uh, Ruth is going to go. She's going to meet Boaz. They're going to uh, be married and the family line will continue. And then that family line we'll read about in Luke and Matthew uh, that Jesus is in that family line. So what we see is uh, events of the story move us forward closer and closer to Christ in history. Redemptive history. Uh, second would be foreshadow. This is the idea that Jesus is like an event, a, a moment, a, something that happens, a system in the Old Testament that Jesus is very much like this. And so we think of things like uh, Moses and the Exodus out of Egypt, right? Uh, Moses rescues the people out of Egypt and their, their bondage and their slavery. And then a huge piece of that is uh, the Passover and the Passover lamb where the firstborn son is going to die. And, and all the firstborns die, but this Passover lamb is slaughtered and the, the blood is put on the doorposts and the thresholds. And, and, and then what we see is Jesus is called the Passover lamb and we say, ah, he's like that. This event, this moment here foreshadows the Savior that is to come. And we say he is like this. He, as a lamb, takes our place and his blood is spilled, not ours, for the wage of our sin and death. All right, so foreshadowing. Uh, I mean, the whole uh, system of priests and the temple and sacrifices is this idea of if you're poor, bring a dove. If, if you've got wealth, bring a, a calf uh, or a cow and slaughter this ram in your place. And you need a mediator, one who's going to bring that sacrifice before the holy and righteous God. And so we, we look at that system and it points us forward. Hebrews is great about this and, and says our Jesus is just like that. Our Savior is a foreshadow, a foretaste of who he is. The next uh, is one we often think about when we think of Old Testament to New Testament pointing to Christ. Uh, this is prophecy, just direct prophecy. Where Jesus is foretold, or uh, Jesus will do this, be that, uh, be born here. Uh, things like, uh, I mentioned Isaiah 53. Uh, the Savior to come is not like this uh, mighty warrior at first. At first, he's a suffering servant. will die in our place. All right, so uh, Isaiah 53 says this Savior is to come. Or Psalm 22, where uh, a crucifixion is talked about long before crucifixion. And here we see no bone of the Savior will be broken. And on the cross we see, wow, none of his bones were broken. He was already dead. Or Micah 5, verse 2, he will be born in Bethlehem. Uh, the last and the one we're going to focus most on uh, when we read the Old Testament pointing towards Christ is this idea of typology. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Uh, this is when a person of the Old Testament uh, in his or her greatness shines forward in a positive way. Wow, we actually have a greater Savior to come. Or when a person of the Old Testament in his or her weakness or negativity and sin, we say, Oh my, we need a Savior to come. So in both in the positive and the negative, let's think of uh, David and Saul. Uh, David, we look at him and we say, wow, he destroys Goliath. Whoa, we've got a greater Savior to come. A king who is even more benevolent and mighty. Then we think of Saul. Oh man, he, he, just, uh, he seems so prideful and insecure and broken. And, and then we look forward and say, oh man, that's me too. I, I have a Savior to come. And then we even look into all the heroes of the Old Testament and we say, wow, there is some good there, but there is some bad and there is some ugly. Even in David's life, this, the, a man after God's own heart leverages his power to, to overcome a woman and murder a man. And we just say, oh man, we need a savior who's so unlike that. 
Uh, so in typology, it's just this idea that there's a type and anti-type, that David or Saul or Joseph, jo- Joseph, uh, who's betrayed by his brothers and, and then uh, comes to power and leverages all this power for the salvation of his family. And we say, wow, right? Like, so typology, uh, in the good, we point to a greater Savior, and in the bad, we point to our need for a Savior. All right, I told you it was going to feel a little bit kind of classroomy in here, but it gets really weird if you kind of just say, I'm going to do uh, kind of any sort of hermeneutical dance to point this passage over here to Jesus. Like uh, the temple has 57 windows. He has 57 love languages for me. And, and you know, we see this stuff in modern writing and we're like, yeah, that's weird. Those four guidelines are really helpful when we look at who Jesus is, is pointing to in the Old Testament that we might know our Savior and be transformed by him. Let's look a bit at Noah and then a story from our own body. I picked Noah because we could fly through it because uh, you most likely uh, were read a very clean version as a child. (laughs) Noah is found in Genesis chapter 6. We'll gloss the story and then we will share our own story of God's provision and protection in a family in our own church. Uh, Here's the situation, verse 5 of chapter 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man that was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts and of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the earth, man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I've made him. This is quite a contrast to the sixth and seventh day of creation when, when God looks at what he's made and he says, it is very good. Our evilness, our wickedness, our rebellion puts us in spots like this in history over and over again where God might look down and say, Oh, my gosh. I can't believe they belong to me. <laughs> this family vacation uh, just last week, and, and, and Brooke runs in the room, and she starts singing one of our country songs full of all these lyrics that I probably should not let Brooke listen to. And she's dancing as she sings them, and I just went, oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's my daughter. <laughs> It's one of those moments for God and Noah and everything he's created. The wickedness is overwhelming. But, but there's one. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah has the grace of God poured on him, plucks him out of the wickedness, and his favor is poured on Noah. And and then we will see that Noah then in his calling is a a righteous man. Verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah says a righteous man. He's blameless in his generation. He walks with God. And Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In the midst of the wickedness, there's a contrast because of God's grace plucking and saving one and then leveraging that relationship to rescue his family. And so uh, God is going to now uh, instruct Noah to build an ark. Uh, Verse 14 and following, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. That's 450 feet. It's a, uh, about a football uh, field and a quarter or so, uh, depending on the end zone. So uh, picture a, a floating football field that, that Noah is building. And, and, and notice Noah is building this when it's not raining. And in contrast, as he was in his righteousness, the wickedness of the time, now he's in contrast in his obedience, which is full and ridiculous and silly. And people must have been looking at him saying, what an idiot. You're going to live your life that way in allegiance to your God, you fool. And 
And God goes through all these different commands of kind of what to make, how to make it, make sure you store food. You've got uh, two animals of every kind. Then you've also got seven pairs of, of different kinds of animals as well. And in verse 18, he says, uh, Noah, I'm going to save you out of this flood. I will establish my covenant with you, Noah. You shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You're in your whole household. You and your people, you and your family are going to be saved. And there's this phrase that marks the whole interchange over and over, uh, marking Noah's obedience to his God. We read it for the first time in verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Every piece. Every step he does, whatever God says, no matter how silly it looks, no matter how much it costs him in terms of his own resources and his time and his effort, uh, you can imagine even his family was probably looking at him and saying, what are you doing? Certainly everyone around is doing this. And he's doing this even probably at the scoffing of his own family to save his own family and to do what God has commanded. Verse 7, you and your household, you're going to be saved for the righteousness before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs. And he goes through all the commands again. And then it begins to rain. Verse 11 of chapter 7. It's the 600th year of Noah's life. Rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, We'll read later in uh, verse 24 of chapter 7 that the rain stays on there for 150 days. The flood continues for 40 days and then 150 days it all stays. And notice verse 21 in summary. All flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm in the earth, all mankind. All mankind. The Lord does not and did not take sin lightly. Only Noah is left. And those who are with him in the ark. Only Noah was left. Women, children, everyone gone. He sends out a dove and a raven and the dove comes back with an olive branch and, the, and then they realize, oh man, there's land. Uh, after 150 some days, the, the water has begun to recede and verse 13 and following capture this in, in chapter 8. Then God said to Noah, verse 15 in chapter 8, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out all the living animals. Be fruitful and multiply. We've heard that before. It's like creation take two. Uh, in some, and then Noah is going to go and build this altar, verse 20, he's going to worship God with sacrifice. The burnt offering is going to go up to the Lord. He smells it. It is a pleasing aroma, as if to say, Lord, you have spared us. This animal is dead, but, but we are spared. And God is pleased. And in some, we read about... Uh, Noah's life in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He rescued his family by faith and he pointed to one as an heir of of the righteousness that would come by faith. So uh, we know it. Uh, God then creates this covenant, and he says, I'll never destroy uh, all of humanity through a flood again. What I'll do is I'll, I'll put a bow in the sky, and the bow will aim up at me, not at you. And it will be a picture, God says, that I'll never destroy you in this kind of way. And it's almost as if everyone is rejoicing in verse 17. God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant I've established between me and all flesh that is on earth. Praise God, right? Verse 18, chapter 9. The sons of Noah went forth from the ark with Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. Ham is the father of Canaan. 
These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. And Noah began to be a man of the soil. He plants a vineyard. He drank of the wine that became, and he became drunk. He lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And Shem and Jephthah took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, walked backward and covered their nakedness of their father. So there's, there's this moment where Noah gets drunk and shames himself in front of everyone, falls asleep, passes out. And we get this picture that Ham probably is kind of making fun of Noah in this moment and making a spectacle of it. Hey, bros, come check this out. Look what dad did. And the brothers are like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this has occurred. And they slowly back in, they cover him and cover his shame. Even in the moment of God's grace and glory, we, we bring our disgustingness and our sin. And then it just perpetuates on and on and on in our life. This, this second recreation now uh, still fallen again in need of a Savior, in need of a Savior like Noah, but greater. Even so much so that people take even these verses about Ham and twist them to justify things like slavery. And you say, oh, how disgusting we are. We need a Savior who will carry us through who will cover us from his own wrath over our sin. Who will redeem us. This is one story, remember. This is one story. Jesus is next. In this, we got a picture of a recreation. Creation take two, but, but we're still in need of a Savior. Be fruitful and multiply. The, uh, two animals. Out of the water of nothingness comes a new creation. Uh, it's, it's a mini picture of a recreation pointing to the fact that we're still broken and need a Savior as the story moves forward in redemptive history. There's a foreshadowing that out of the water will come salvation, right? Some will be saved. And, and 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and 21 pick up on that image. And Peter says, man, just like Noah and his family were saved out and through the water, so we are now saved in baptism, not being cleaned by it or washed off by water, but having a clean conscience through our Savior Jesus who's greater than Noah. What a foreshadow of the one to come. A prophecy, Luke chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. Jesus is talking about the time to come, and he says, this time that's coming, it's going to be a lot like the days of Noah, when wickedness covered the earth, but God shows his might and his grace. And through typology, oh, our Noah is, points us to a greater Savior, Jesus, whose obedience saves his people. Two quick applications and a story of how this has worked out in our own family, the church. The first application is this. Aren't you glad that God loves the good, the bad, and the ugly? When we are honest with ourselves, it's one of the things I want us to do this summer is to be honest, to bring our good, bad, and ugly to our Savior. There's stuff in your life you don't want to admit. You don't want to confess. Bring it to him. He's a greater Savior. He'll refresh and restore and cover you in grace. Aren't you glad he loves the good, the bad, and the ugly? And then the second point, which we'll illustrate through our own story. What a mighty salvation our Savior brings. <laughs> what a mighty salvation our Savior brings. Our our God who gives us Jesus and salvation and all of eternal security, making us sons and daughters of his son, Jesus. <laughs> and not only does he give us this eternal life and relationship with him now into all of eternity, but, but like he carried Noah and his family in the ark and, and, and protected and provided for them over those 150 days, so, so he pours on protection and provision for us uh, in our arcs, in our little uh, church families together, uh, covered by His grace together. He gives us salvation that pours on even more on top in protection and provision physically for us. I think I've got a microphone here. Uh, Hilda and Mabel are going to share just a bit of what protection and provision... Oh, Mabel's going to hold it? Okay, Mabel's going to hold it, sorry. A bit of what protection and provision has looked like from our God in their lives 
and salvation and all things. Should be ready to go. Good morning, church. Oh, it's much better now. Thank you, Pastor Matt, for this opportunity to share this morning. Um, just like the pastor has said, <laughs> I mean, our God is good, even to the bad, the good, and the ugly. This morning, we will be sharing about God's grace, his provision, and his blessings in our lives. When we first moved here, to the States some years back. Um, it wasn't easy adapting into a new culture, one of which was transportation, especially for my sister and wheelchair. It's always been an issue even back home, but we just trusted God. And we started off with a Toyota Camry. It wasn't easy, it was hard because each time I'll have to carry my sister into and out of that car, even with the wheelchair. But we're able to raise some money and we got us a, a used accessible van. I mean, it was like a game changer. We believed God for that van alone because it made life so easy, but that didn't last long because being a used van, it was old and it had issues. So <laughs> we were like, when it started giving us issues, we're like, um, it's only a miracle that can happen because if this van breaks down, we will not be able to afford another given that they are so expensive. But God being God, he used you, this church, and you provided us with a new van. So, <laughs> so I was sitting in the said van a few nights ago we actually were visiting somewhere where my wheelchair could not go in and everyone, we have a big family, so everyone went in and I was just sitting in this van and it was like a movie, sort of a short movie of life as has been prior to now. My sister talks about carrying me into the Camry but even prior to that, um, it's been challenging. So I remembered all the moments when it was not just being carried into a car, but not having a wheelchair or being stuck in places where I couldn't be transported. And here I was sitting in a van. That really struck me, you know, and it reminded me also of how much my faith needs to grow because my contention with the Lord has always been like, Lord, just give me the strength to make my own money and buy my own things like everyone else. But the Lord is teaching me, and I'm sure all of us, the beauty of dependence, the beauty of grace, which is like being in a body like this when I don't have much to offer and then sitting in a van that I didn't buy, you know, looking back and seeing how the Lord provides, not just that, but also every other thing that I need. And it is something that if you're praying for me, pray that I shouldn't lose faith in that because I think the Lord has been teaching me that lesson and it's hard for me to get. Another thing that this is teaching us is that we are indeed blessed to bless other people um, you don't have time to hear all of the stories of how much God has provided for me, for Mabel, for our family. And sometimes when he provides, he doesn't just give to us as an individual family. He makes it such that we can be a blessing to others. And I think that is what he has done through you, blessing you so that you can be a blessing to us. 
And the third thing I will say is that God is faithful. Uh, waiting is not easy, but God will come through. This van is a testament of that to us. I, um, there's a passage in the Bible that I always quote to myself when I feel like I'm losing heart. Um, in Psalm 27, verse 13 says, I am confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then verse 14 goes on to say, wait for the Lord. Be strong, take heart, and wait for the Lord. So waiting is not easy. God doesn't work on our timetable, but he will show up. Every time you see that van, remember that no matter what you are waiting for, if God has said it, he will do it. So thank you all so much for being a blessing to us. God bless you as only he can. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. You know, um, when, yeah, Darren, you can come up here. Um, we were at, I love you guys. Uh, we were at Chick-fil-A on the, the, the maiden voyage of the van. <laughs> and we're going we're gonna to spend some time just uh, after worship here uh, praying for Hilda and Mabel and their van uh, outside as we uh, enjoy fellowship together. When, um, when we were there eating a week and a half or so ago, um, Hilda goes, that van's kind of like my ark. And that's when we thought, we ought to share this. We ought to share this during the Noah thing. I don't know where you're at right now. Um. But you have an I have, you have, we have an amazing Savior. We have an amazing Savior. He knows right where you are. The whole story from start to finish is about him. And he's right with you in this moment of your story. And it's not Noah building up. He is building an ark around you to carry you, to walk with you into the time when he will return and make all things new. He will provide for you. He will be with you. And he, even through our own church together, will be the grace of our God. How do we know this? Every week we're reminded of that pinnacle moment in the story when our Savior's body was broken for our provision. His blood was spilled for our provision. He protected us. He provided for us. He, he met every need our God did in His Son to make you and to make me His son and His daughter. And then to carry us into eternity when He will return. So if you're trusting in Christ this morning, would you remember His body was broken, His blood was spilled, that you would be written into His story by His grace. And He's resurrected to live with you now. It transform your life as we walk with him in obedience, covered in his grace and compelled by our love for him. Let's take and eat together.